Hello and welcome to this special episode of the More Bikes Podcast. Today we'd like to present you an exclusive interview with a racing legend, James Whittam. James Whittam raced in both British and international championships, winning the British Championship twice. The Huddersfield-born racer won the 1986 British ATCC Championship, but he didn't stop there. He also won the 1988 1300cc Production British Championship. And if that wasn't enough, he also competed at the Isle of Man TT between 1986 to 1989. The following was an exclusive interview with James with focus on the highs and lows of his career, his upbringing and very eccentric father, and much more. Bertie Simmons, editor of Classic Motorcycle Mechanics, conducted the interview as part of an evening with James Whitton. There is the use of some colourful language in this episode, so this content is recommended for adults only. Uh, most people, I guess our generation, uh, I got into bikes through, uh, you got into bikes two ways, didn't you? You got one, your dad or your uncle or some other older family member, male family member were into bikes and that's how you got in. Or you had a mate on a bike and you blagged to go on it across a wreck or whatever you did. And in my case, it was my dad. We took two things, my dad were into motorbikes. Uh, been to watch the TT uh, all the time as a youth. <laughs> he only stopped going to the TT, he reckons, when we were born and he had to support family. But we always, the, the second thing is, so you're into bikes, and I was brought up on the best bit of land in the world for a, any kid to get brought up. We had a lot of room. We, my dad, in 1972, when I was five, but anybody heard of David Brown tractors? Yeah. Right, the orange and white tractors made in Ruddersfield, they had their own airfield, they developed, they, they built this airfield for their own private aircraft, they were having financial issues in the late 60s, and by 72 they were in for selling out of asset off, boats, whatever yachts they had for the, the, they had all sorts of toys. One of them was this airfield, but had stole it off them for 12 grand basically, and this place was massive runway, big hangar, and 80 odd acres of reasonably rough, Yorkshire Moor. But what it did mean is, as kids, I had three sisters and uh, we could do what we wanted. We could just, you weren't going to upset anybody, you were only people you going to kill were yourselves, basically, because we didn't have any neighbours. So, I mean, your, your sort of, um, your first dealings with vehicles, engines were obviously on the airfield. Yeah. You, you, you indulged in a spot of being a, a sort of a pseudo milkman when you were a kid, didn't you? Going to pick up milk in a mini pickup? Oh no, we had, yeah, we had a... It's your life, I'm just trying to help you along yeah. here. <laughs> well, my dad was a milkman as well, he, had, he did a lot of stuff. Uh, one of the things he was, when I was a real kid, we're a, he had a milk round, but when we moved to Airfield, we, didn't, we weren't on anybody's milk round. We had to finish with his milk round by then, and you couldn't, it was before the days of getting milk really in supermarkets, and we got our milk from the farm about a mile away down a bumpy, unmade... Private road. <laughs> private road. My dad told me I'd drive when I was about probably eight or nine, sat me in a cushion and we'd go up and down the runway and I could I could drive alright. And we had a mini pickup and um I was at it out one day and I happened to uh drive it through the wing of an aeroplane. <laughs> an aeroplane? Yeah. They're not cheap, are they aeroplanes? No. Mini pickups in the seventies probably are. It were a thing called a robin, it were a wood and uh, fabric aeroplane, it was old construction, it just, it just flipping, took the wing off, yeah, 
funny thing was, the boat was sat in it, even it was ticking over. And, was still, and, and it's still ticking over, that's how I've taken his left wing off. And he's looking like that. I'm in my wing then. No, I want that, but it, that wasn't a happy time in my life. That oh, can you imagine? No, I mean... Uh, so my dad had, to keep me out of trouble, or... This was his idea, keep me out of trouble. He'd, uh, he'd bring me little motorbikes home. Not, 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 you know, expensive kids' motocross bikes. These were field bikes. These were things he'd blagged and nicked to found in skips, whatever. So they'd be all road bikes, bantams, all that sort of thing. Can I just say, keep you out of trouble? He was as bad as you, wasn't Always he? Or worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a few... Uh, James obviously flies, and so did his dad, David. I mean, he had a couple of incidents where he'd be upside down in a plane and be helping his mate out and... No, that's the thing. Well. The airfield, mate, but my dad rented hangar space to other people who had airplanes. Yeah. So they kept their airplanes in our hangar and paid my dad the rent for the hangar space. So every, there were airplanes up there, there were horses, tractors, anything wheel, with wheels and engines. We had quite a lot of, so by the time I was a nine, ten year old, we'd had loads of bikes and I'd strip them, I'd do wheelies, we'd have flipping. Avoid the bit, the really dangerous bit. Do you know what I mean? We knocked ourselves about enough to respect them, but my dad was more, a lot more dangerous than me. I know it's difficult to believe, but my dad was horrendously dangerous with what he did. And but he was from a time when that was all acceptable. You know, you took your life, you you, you made your own risk assessment. You didn't get somebody else in. You thought, yeah, well, I've got that. Wouldn't he tell you thought, to clean out threshing machines or something? Or, or no, no, he, he, uh, we had a. We had some, we did a lot of hay making up there because my sister had horses and he taught me at about nine how to use a, a thing called a cutter bar. This thing stuck out the side of a front farmer's in, you know, not a disc mower that they have now. These things had blades about six feet long and they went, they were caught finger mowers, weren't they? And they were fucking dangerous. <laughs> Honestly. But they used to jam up occasionally. If you got a lot of hay on, they'd jam up. But my dad says, don't stop it, don't take it out of drive, take it out of gear, but leave the, leave the thing going. And he said, just just kick the air out, it won't come out of you. I'm nine, with fingers like that. That's it, like, go and get a kick, oh, that's it, that's it. Uh, so we got all that going on, but he, my dad did, it was, uh, it was normal to me, but looking back, it was a complete psycho. He, uh, he, he was into his flying and he had a little aeroplane, which is why we ended up with the airfield in the first place. But he knew some, my dad didn't have a load of money, but he had some eye-rolling mates because they were into people on aeroplanes, some of them were quite wealthy. So when one of the funny things that happened early on, he, he had a thing called a 150 Cessna. So if you're into flying, a 150 Cessna is a aluminium, eye-wing, American, engine at the front, tail at the back, two-seat aeroplane, like a, like a, Ford Focus of the Skies, it's a very common, usable little aeroplane. But my dad, in conversation, had dropped this into conversation, make it sound like he had a fucking Learjet or something. <laughs> You're behind a pub like this and he goes, oh yes, I have got a PPL. And I, I hear him saying, think, oh no, he's off about flying again. Here he goes, just been a cock, you know. <laughs> anyway, he bought a, he do an MG Midget up. An MG Midget has an engine in called an A-Series Austin. They put them in everything, from Moggy House to Midgets to they all I think even minis had a bit. This thing's a little engine, cast iron, quite heavy but quite small. And it, before the days of the internet, you bought everything. A lot of you in room will know. You bought uh, Exchange and Mark paper, didn't you? Yeah. And everything came out of that from all over the country. So he's bought this engine off phone. He's done a deal with this dude in like Norfolk somewhere. 
or maybe Cambridgeshire. And he's on the phone, he's like, yeah, well, I'll try and get there and pick up on the weekend. If it's as good as you say, I'll stand on, no problem, happy with the price. And then he, this is the phrase, tell me, um, is there a private airfield near where you live? I'm like, oh, here he goes again. And next thing, like, oh, yes, I do have an airplane, yes. <laughs> anyway, so he, set, he sets off to pick this engine up, this Saturday, with his 150 Cessna, flies down there, comes back, no engine. I said, one of did you buy it? He goes, yep. He said, don't worry about it. It sat on a sack on the seat, so it didn't make the seat book okay. <laughs> Got to be choppy, it's leaning against the door, catches on, and it's fallen out. <laughs> so if anyone knows, if anyone was killed by... He'd have come near here. He'd have come about this way back. And I says, are you going to tell anybody? He went, I fucking aren't. <laughs> So tell us about bikes. I know you said that you obviously, because of the space that you had available, your sisters could indulge in horse riding and, and you could indulge in uh, crashing into wings of aeroplanes in a mini pickup. Um, what about motorcycles and bikes? I mean, did, was, 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 was there sort of uh, one friend of yours that kind of turned up on a pooch magnum and it was like a bit of a moment, like a wall? I want one of those. Nah, put magnums were a. Uh, put magnums were a. You know what a put magnum is? Put magnum. Little white with red and blue stripe thing, automatic, very trick, lovely at time. But they were a rich kid's toy, weren't they? No, we didn't have all like that. We had proper field bikes like FS1Es and Bantams and stuff that were knackered. And what did your dad buy you for a tenner? Uh, I ended up, you know, the best field bike I ever had were a CG125 Honda. Them things were indestructible, beautiful little thing. We put knobbly tyres on it and that's what we did and that's what all my mates did and that's what people were doing everywhere wasn't it i mean everybody we all had motorbikes that's how we got into you know bikes it's always been bikes for me i've never i've never really been able to afford uh, a really trick car i'd love uh, a trick car or two but i can't really afford not enough skill to build one i'm not enough patience to build one all the welding and the fabric but motorbikes I know what I'm doing bikes and I, I, I've always liked them and even as a kid I've flipping, I love working on them, I'd strip them down if there's nothing wrong with them just to see how it worked. Generally put them back together have a few bits left over but normally they'd work even without the other bits in, wouldn't they? You'd got a few washes over but you thought, well it's running, it still worked. So yeah that, that was always bikes for me. When my dad took me to, uh, he bought a 404, uh, first new bike he got, it was always an autumn man. But we didn't, he didn't have bikes when I was a, a kid, but I knew we were into bikes. But then he took me, he got a 404 and went to see um, transatlantic match races at Mallory Park. And uh, there were about 50,000 people there, as it turned out. And we queued to get in, we queued to get out, we queued for a piss, we queued for a burger, we queued for a cup of tea, and I never saw one motorbike all day. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the back of some big bloke's head. I heard him. There's some great bits in your book where it, there's that sort of classic Yorkshire tight as a duck's backside. We weren't allowed designer stuff, you got cheap shit. So you got Lord Anthony jeans, not Wranglers or Levi's, you know what I mean? And you had hand-me-downs from Three Sisters, didn't you? Yeah, it were army stores, not, not designer outlets, wasn't it? That's what it was like. So, just in the days when you, I was getting old enough, so I needed proper stuff, so I needed, I wanted I need our shoes. I didn't want flipping normal, you know, Dunlop flipping green flash. Yeah. I wanted flipping Adidas or, you know, Nikes. And I wanted proper jeans. And I was starting to get a bit trendy and flipping chat women up and that at school. So I said to my mum, Mum, I know you buy me clothes and you mean well, but don't 
I'd rather have half as many jeans, but a good pair. She goes, well, what do you call a good pair? I buy you perfectly adequate jeans. I said, right, Wranglers, they've got to say Wrangler on them, or Levi, that's what, or possibly Lee, but I don't want any of this stuff you get from Army and Navy stores. Right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll see. Anyway, two days later, we're going to school, and my mate called Ruffy, Andrew Ruff, he had a, a, a mum who doored on him, and she bought him everything, and he had a pair of Wranglers on, which were the go of the town were Wranglers. Remember, they had a double go back on down your pockets, in there? And he's walking on pavement, and she goes, oh yeah, there's Andrew there. I goes, oh yeah, Ruffy, he's, he's got, he's got some Wranglers, that's what I want, that's them jeans I want if you see them in town. So she stops car, puts a handbrake on, goes over to my payments, puts her hand on his head and spins him round looking at his jeans and going, I'll piss them, I'll make them. <laughs> I says, you'll make them. She goes, yeah, I've got, I've got a pair. She used to make her own clutches to stitch clothes up with a sewing machine. She goes, I'll make you a pair. And bless her, right? She made me a pair of jeans. They were, they were just, they were, they were all made jeans. But she even stitched a W in yellow stitching into the pocket, right? Bless her. Looking back now, it's the cutest thing, isn't it? But they were instantly recognisable as an homemade pair of jeans, right? So, you know what my mates called them? The Wronglers. And, and the, the great story about um, the crusts of bread. I mean, was that from him being in a... Uh, where, where was he? Where, where he realised he wasn't going to... He, he wasn't being fed oh, crusts of bread and he decided to take all their crusts of bread. My dad, uh, had, um, when he had his garage in Halifax, he got to know a lot of local people. One of them were local, uh, Costa, who was a Greek Cypriot, one of the ones that got out in the early 70s when there was a, a lot of bad stuff happening in Cyprus. I think Turkey should got halfway across. Anyway, yeah. And this bloke called Costa ended up with a cafe. My dad went there to eat his dinner, and he realised every day that when you got your dinner, you got a couple of slices of bread and butter with your dinner, proper working man's cap type thing. And he noticed, like some blessed type bread you got, but he noticed you never got a crust. And crusts of bread are either you like them or you don't like them. We were brought up to believe they were a real treat with crusts, and I still like crusts now. But he noticed you never, you never got a crust, and he'd say to Costa, you never had a crust with you, didn't you want to do it crust? He says, and he thought he had a really posh establishment in Costa, he says, oh, it's a quality establishment. I don't give the crust away. I don't, I don't want to give. I don't want to serve a crust. Well, what are you doing with your crust, then, Costa? He says, "Well, we we throw them to, we throw it out, and Pigman comes for his edible waste, and Pigman takes it away and feeds his pig. He says, you can't throw good crust away." He says, "Tell you what, Costa. He says, put all your crusts back together and put them back in a bag." Well, Costa bagged it, put all these crusts together till it was about the size of what the loaf would have been. A Whitam loaf. Yeah, a loaf of crust. <laughs> but, but now with that slimy, right, he brought them home and convinced us that he was doing us a favour. He's going, you, you can't get these everywhere. It's a loaf full of crust. <laughs> How much of a treat is that? And we're going, ooh, yeah. <laughs> Like pâté foie gras on a crust. I mean, and what about guns? I mean, oh, yeah, you're from the north, so that means you want to shoot anything. Really. Looked, yeah, we had a lot of guns about the place. And, and they were hidden beyond the wit of any... Oh, you'd never get to them. They were in the airing cupboard. <laughs> he just popped them in the airing cupboard. He had, um, he had... He went into his old gun, so he had, like, uh, he had um, Lee Enfield, he had a... Uh, Martin... Lee Enfield, like a prop packer? Yeah, but the Lee Enfield never were kept... He never... They were just collecting 
I guess you could fire him if he had the ammo, but I never saw him fire them. But he had, um, they were almost his, he just had them like you'd have an old bike that you never ride, if you know what I mean. So he had a Lee Enfield, he had a thing called a Martini Henry, if you know what that is. Yeah, that's Like no. a big trapdoor type thing, bullet for that. He had a, a dummy bullet, what a <laughs> weapon of a thing that, we will not want that. You flipping, like he'll tell you. Um, so he had that, but he had, um, He'd go out shooting with it, he went play, doing clay shooting, he had a shotgun, single barrel shotgun, and he also had um, a little 2 2, he'd call it pest control kind of rifle. All I know about it is it, you unscrewed a big spring out the back of the stock, and then you, you poked your little rimfire 2 2 bullets in there, maybe about 10 of them, and then you put this thing and then you, you just had a little click at the bottom, you know, and he taught me how to use it when I was a right kid, and he, he taught me safety and all that. But when he went out, we'd go and uh, shoot stuff, basically. But I know it sounds horrible, this, because you get locked up. If, if you, if you want to get back at your neighbour these days, all you got to do is whisper to the police that he might just have an angle in flipping attic, and they get locked up for 10 years now. It's like, it, it's nuts, isn't it? Really. I mean, quite right. But James, we have had, we've had the Haslam's here, so this is, don't worry. Yeah. The Haslam's yeah. and guns. But my dad, it, we had a, I only did it a couple of times, but to show off that I had this gun, because none of my mates would believe that. I, it, they go, no, an air rifle, I'm going, no, it's a proper bullet gun. And, no, I am. Yeah, yeah, I'm shooting my dad. Anyway, so I took it to local village, and we'd ping a few sh two twos off uh, signs. You know, road signs, ping, you could hear them, sometimes you could hear them, <laughs> really dangerous, I mean, definitely enough power to kill somebody, I guess, but anyway, local Bobby got wind of this, back in the day when a village had a Bobby, who everybody knew, and he got wind of this, and he came up to see my dad, and I kind of knew what it was about, and I went, to say I was shitting myself was a massive understatement, I knew, what he'd come for. I knew my dad would probably get into trouble and I knew that he'd go nuts for me and probably belt me. And this copper had picked up, he'd found a couple of uh, shells, but they were flat. They were like as, almost as big as a 10p and thin, you know, and all splayed out because of it, these signs. There were nothing left of them, really. But you could tell they had been about the size of a 2-2 slug. And he comes up and he's got a couple of these in his pocket and he comes in and he says, David, we need a word. The lambo, and I'm listening. I'm listening from the corridor, and he says, "Yeah." He goes, "Your lad, have you got a, have you got a rim fire?" He goes, "Yeah." He says, "Right, well, your lad, he's been. He says, don't deny it. He says, he's been in village with me, and he's he's been pinging this." My father says, "Right, okay." And I'm like, "Oh God, here we go." Anyway, he, he got these things out of his pocket. I couldn't really tell what was happening because I couldn't see, but he got these things out of his pocket. Must have showed him father, and he just goes. Have you had him down the lab to check the rifling? Well, there were fuck all left of them. <laughs> check, check the rifling. And as soon as he said that, I knew, I thought, he's all, he got, my dad's going to be all right with this, you know. <laughs> and and, and Copper just said, David, sort it. And, and walked out. And they, after that, he did start locking his guns up. But, did but he give I, you can a, you imagine that these days? Did he give you a hiding or? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but I, got, I only ever had a couple of hidings as a kid, and every time he'd done it, I thought, yeah, I deserve that. <laughs> yeah. Really. 1978, you went to 
the TT with your dad. From what I've spoken to you before, that almost was like some sort of watershed yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. We and you flew, because obviously your dad had a PPL. No, we, did, we actually did fly that year, went on a bike, but um, subsequent years we did. Uh, but my dad always said, right, I'm going to take you to TT. Uh, you, have you, you broken the microphone again? <laughs> it's British. That's the problem. That's it's a British problem, microphone. Yeah. <laughs> it's pissing oil out of mine. So, uh, yeah, we went across in 78, and my dad was telling me about uh, Aylwood, how we're going to win, and Aylwood's best rider ever, blah, blah, Aylwood, 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 it went, and a few of his mates went over with us. And um, obviously, I never knew who Aylwood was, because I wasn't even born when Aylwood last raced before he's come back after 11 years of being out of sport. Um, but we sat and watched the, the big one with the F1 race when he beat. Phil Reed were on the four and uh, Aylwood were on his rally old uh, Ducati and won in it. Would, uh, yeah, it was magic. Really, he, to be honest, it wasn't what I thought. It was watching everybody else uh, around me. me realise what they were yeah. seeing was something yeah, special. And at that point I thought, oh, light bikes. Really light bikes. And, I never, and I'm, I've, never, I've never thought any different since, really. John Noble, were you at that event? Were you actually at MC by then or not? No, just too early. Um, okay. Well, that, that's not work then, is it? That'd be about 10. But it was a, just a really special day, seeing people's reaction to, to what was going on. Plus, I think it, even now, I think it's the Isle of Man in terms of how many people went and how many bikes went across. I think it still is the most visited year ever in its history, I think. I think I'm right in saying. I've read it somewhere. You're an experienced commentator. What would you liken it to now? What could happen in the future? I mean, are we seeing it with Rossi still being at the sharp end, or what would kind of almost be all at that level of comeback? Or I don't know. Well, comebacks don't work, do they? I mean, who else has ever made a comeback that's really properly worked up there? Especially after 11 years, it just. But what I tell you, what I found out is two two regrets I've got uh, from racing. I'll talk about one later but one of my big regrets is uh, not so highly wrong but i would have loved to meet Aylwood and i probably ended up in a position where i would have been at an event or i would have probably been there to meet him and that would have been i'd have loved that so i regret never meeting Aylwood because he would get i think he died 81 maybe and i hadn't even started racing at that point so i regret never meeting him but what I didn't realise that knowing uh, there's a family called Padgett's, Padgett's Motorcycles up there in Batley, Yorkshire family, very Yorkshire people. Hello, Padgett's. Just, just, they are as Yorkshire as what you get. Tight people, but, <laughs> but they love the bikes. And I never I never realised that, I'm quite friendly with, with Clive, Clive's a good bloke. And he says, oh yeah, but he says, I'm really a kid, but he says, uh, Aylwood did a lot of wrecking, you know. He didn't want to make a comeback unless he was fairly certain he could be competitive, right? So he went to the Manx the previous year, so this would be 77 Manx, and he borrowed a, a, a TZ750, and they dressed it up like a marshal's bike, and he did sections of the TT course, pretending to be a sort of marshal. People knew it was him, but they just thought at that point, he never made his announcement, that he was just doing a bit of a celebrity marshalling job, and he'd do sections as fast as he could. He never did a lap, he never gave anybody a chance to go, we know what he's doing, he's gonna make a comeback. But he did sections, and he knew after the Manx 77 apparently, uh, so Clive says he knew he'd be competitive. He knew he, he knew it well enough. Still, he knew he could ride. Still, he, he wanted a nugget. 
he, you know, he went, he went to do a job, and by the time he come at 78 TT, he was fairly certain he could do it. Talking about your dad and bikes, didn't he have one particular special bike? Uh, was it a Norton? Was it a Max? He, had a, he, had a, he got. Um, he had a 38 International Norton. A really nice thing. Still now, it, but it, I mean. Have you still got it? No, it was. You had uh, it for a while, didn't you? Yeah, we kept we kept hold of it for a bit, but that went. Actually, no one got sold because we needed some money to maintain the place. We sold one or two of my dad's stuff. I shouldn't have sold it really, but by then, and I, do you know what? I've no massive interest in. It was a bit old for me. I like my Japanese stuff. I like my um, most of my stuff's two strokes. I've just finished. Um, any Brit bike enthusiasts in the room? Nah, I'm here now. I've just rebuilt one and I'm not one anymore. <laughs> first, first British bike I've ever known to do with. I've just built myself a Rickman Matisse, right? Bought a frame kit, uh, saw some old, saw some Siriani forks, rebuilt a Triumph engine, done all that. What heap of shit. <laughs> yeah. They just they leak oil. The machines are available, by the way. They just, they just leak oil and they don't run properly, and you can't set an amol carb up as good as a. They just not a brilliant thing. It looks beautiful, but I can see. Is why. that why you didn't write it for classic motorcycle mechanics? Because you rang me up excited about you're going to do this and that and the other, and then I didn't hear from you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I never, I've never angled. I'm more of a. I like to be in my shed. I'm not so bothered about typing. Basically, that's my, that's my problem. Honestly, I'm the other way around. Okay. Well, yeah, my dad was a, my dad was a big naughty man, but he got into Japanese bikes uh, later on and bought himself a phone. And then he, he was a bit, bit of an Honda. I think the old school blokes then were into Hondas, weren't they? Because Hondas were more four-stroke. I mean, that were old school sort of four-stroke. I think he, he stripped it down and found like a little puncture repair that had yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a signature on Dennis it. He was almost in tears. Dennis Parkinson had... had when you had to fix a puncture with a hot thing and melt your rubber on there, and it said Dennis Parkinson and a four-figure Wakefield number. Dennis Parkinson were a northern reasonable rider, kind of a, a sort of Mick Grant type, but a generation before. And he, my dad was happy with his uh, <laughs> happy with his puncture repair that had been done in must have been, I guess, in thirties, I guess. So I might, I, might, I might get this wrong, but uh, again, someone who factors big in your career is Mick Grant, and I think I remember reading somewhere that. Um, Halewood came up to Mick and said, "Oh, can I follow you through?" The, you know, or and like Mick was like, "That's like, ask you know, God asking me what the Bible's about yeah, or something yeah, yeah. like that." Yeah, Mick. Mick was uh, obviously a big Halewood fan, uh, and Mick was another another big influence in my life. Mick, because we owned a runway. Mick, that's why I got to know Mick. Mick was from Huddersfield, out from Huddersfield. He was from the other side of town. And Mick was a local leader. We'd drive past his house and say, oh, that's where Mick ran. We, it was massive at the time. We were watching, on a Saturday, you'd put, you'd put sport on it, World of Sport Superbike Challenge. Remember all that? We're flipping Daft Ron Aslam, crashing every weekend, and flipping with his long hair and all. It was great, wasn't it? And, and uh, Dave Potter and all these kind of people. And then I remember Graham Crosby winning a race with a big flipping sit up and beg four stroke. It was just good stuff. And we, so we knew Mick. And I'd seen him in Isle of Man 78 on his uh, Kawasaki Triple. So when we'd pass his house, I'd say, oh yeah, that's where Mick Grant lives. And he, everyone knew who Mick Grant was. And then he rang us up in the early 80s when he was running his own team, when he'd been, I think, ondered, he'd left Honda after the NR debacle. I think it was about 81. He ran his own Formula One bike. He ran like a Peking McNabb thing, didn't he? Uh, Suzuki and a 350 Yam. And he rang up and said, could I come and 
use airfield for, for my dad says oh that my dad won't impress with anybody he says oh that Mick Grant that racer bloke he's coming up to uh, he's coming up to use airfield I'm like oh <laughs> and I just hung about Mick I was like a little snotty kid just being impressed with it all and so that's how I got to know Mick which turned out to be quite influential in, in me you know quite helpful to me really so so getting into racing I mean how did that happen was that kind of with uh, following on the coattails of Dave Leach yeah Dave Leach uh, Dave Leach was uh, my dad my dad's best mate one of his biking mates a bloke called Clifford Leach and he's, he had a lad two and a half years older than me I went, went called David who became went, Dave Leach went on to become I think six time a TT winner very very good rider underrated very brave I mean too brave one of them lads who absolutely knew no fear and very quiet as well really quiet really really quiet bloke but and a little bit strange if I'm honest <laughs> I had to spend a lot of time with him because his dad were best mates with my dad so you'd get lumped together so you'd go on holidays together go on biking holidays together and all that and I'd have to hang about with Dave but he was quiet and two year older than me two and a half year older than me so he started racing when he was 17 I'd be about 14 or 15 at the time and doing all right so he'd be going around Carnaby and Cadwell and Elvington and Northern circuits and when I got 16 I would then yapping at my dad because on a field bike not that there's any similarity I was always better than Dave I could always I always thought I was a better rider than Dave just ticking about on fields so obviously that will translate to time I it obviously in my head <laughs> and I, I says to dad I'll oh, beat him yeah I'm definitely better than him so my dad bought me a little 125 Honda and off I went but me and Dave had travelled together I was 16 so I couldn't drive a car I'd have fit, I'd have FS1 out road but I was racing this lovely little Honda race by a little two-stroke single every weekend but I had to go wherever Dave was racing because I couldn't I didn't have a van and I couldn't get myself anywhere so I'd go with Dave so if Dave entered me in a Cadwell with Auto 66 I'd go to Cadwell if he entered a race at Croft with some other Croft club I'd go there so I raced alongside him and I've been with him a year just about every weekend in summer going to various circuits up and down the country right in his van he's driving I'm in middle his girlfriend's there and after this, as I say, a year, must have done 10,000 miles with him, right? That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Right in the middle as well. No, she was all right. She was a good lass, actually. Yeah, she was all right. Dave would have been saying, but Dave, we got a copper behind us who followed us for about five miles and then put his lights on. So he's obviously giving us a pull. And Dave just says, might be in a bit of trouble here. Bear in mind, we've been driving around, he's been driving me around for a year. I says, what do you want to do now, wrong? He goes, oh, well, I ain't got a license. <laughs> What? Oh, I ain't got a license. I haven't done a test. I haven't had any lessons at all. What? <laughs> Fucking lunatic. He's about as qualified as you then with your milk runs. <laughs> but Dave went on to become a really, really um, uh, good roadman. Spent a lot of time in Ireland racing places like Tandagree, uh, Cookstown, all them kind of places. Uh, one North West, one TTs. Particularly good on production stuff. Particularly good. On, on big sort of J6Rs and, and uh, FZR1000s, that sort of thing. Good, good rider. Lives in Ireland now. Went to live over there. Good bloke. So, I mean, your first race was uh, Carnaby, June 1983. Uh, you know, just sort of moving forward a couple of years. When did you realise that there was... You, you could do it. There was a bit of talent there that you, you could you could maybe... Maybe not make a living, but that you were, you were kind of going to go places doing it. I think... 
straight away, and I've spoke to other people about this, you, when you start getting, I don't know what it's like now, because people want to be famous before they've done anything, don't they? They want to be, you know, you get these lads on, and lasses on X Factor saying, I know I've got the talent, and then you do the thing, you think, you ain't got any fucking talent. <laughs> what is in your head? Pack it in, go and get a job. Right? But it would have been different then. You I thought you wouldn't bring up my, my little thing on X Factor, but... <laughs> but you, I wanted to race a motorbike, because Dave did, and, and I thought it was the coolest thing, and, and I've been to a lot of meetings with him watching him. But you never thought you'd be good, but when you... You realise, you think everybody who races bikes is some kind of god, even at club level, you go, oh god, yeah, that would yeah, he wouldn't. But actually, when you get going, you think, nah, they're not that good. I'm all right, I, I, can, I can do this. But not in a big-headed way, just think, because all you want to do, if you, I think, I always thought, if I win a couple of club, club races, I'll do me, I'll be all right. That, that's, you know, I'll get me, get me name in MCN. Back at MCN, you used to have every, you used to have every club race that had gone on that weekend, and you'd find your name, oh, third in the one, two, five, home class. Oh, there, that's me. Keep writing like that. And I'd be sort of really happy with, I thought I'd be happy with that, but then you kind of move on and then there's another step in front of you then. Oh, well, your mate will say, we did all right last week. Why don't we do a, we do that national end of the season. Just do, enter that national, see how you get on. Then you did better than you thought of that. And then one thing kind of leads on, you know. It would be, Carl was very different. Carl always had that kind of blinkered, self-belief he says from first getting on a bike he always knew we'd be all right he always knew we'd be good he always knew we'd be world champion it's all right when you have done that and you follow through with it all to say that that's what you believed but whether he actually believed that at the time before he'd been a world champ i don't know i know i didn't i i you know i just thought i i, I love doing it and because i'd a little bit very early on you can tell if you've got a little bit of talent you don't know how far you're going to go in you could break your leg after a season and never do it again but I knew we were alright at it so then you cling on to it because I've never been good at anything else so then that's your thing then isn't it that, that becomes your little sport because that's what you're good at and then you throw a bit more attention into it then it becomes your life then so that's what happens and, I, and people all sports are like that if you've got a bit of talent you kind of you chase it as far as you can you shove it don't you that's what you you do really and, and it's a good and it's a really anybody doing any racing anybody done some racing it's flipping brilliant it's just the nicest thing isn't it you just you be a bunch of blokes who and these days quite a lot of girls as well who are doing the same thing they're all grubby fingernailed or they're what they are I don't know where they are now a lot of them buy, they buy the rides don't they they buy a whatever they buy the dad buys them an 80 grand flipping superstop ride or whatever they're doing but then it were all generally working class people with an old van and grubby hands and it, and it I, I, I enjoyed that is that why you only had one proper job really I was an engineer oh, <laughs> oh yes I've been around a bit for about how long well, until I went to do banks and then they sacked you didn't they yeah they fired because um, I, well, I actually went into office I've been a apprentice Toolmaker. My apprenticeship was toolmaker and general engineer, and I was doing day release. So you go to tech one day and tech one night, and the rest of the time you're in a factory. And um, I've been working there about 18 months. Good job, learning a bit. And um, when it off, but it was one of them places that closed down. You couldn't have your holidays when you wanted. You had to have it when it showed. And so everybody had all off at the same time. And uh, I wanted to do Manx, but it didn't, didn't coincide with an holiday, so I went to ask the boss, a man called Mr. Roebuck. Uh, nice man. Until I asked him if I could have two weeks off to go to a Manx Grand Prix. And he said, look, 
We're light here, we think you've got a future. However, if you go to Mines Grand Prix, wherever that is, because um, <laughs> they were not into bikes, um, we're going to let you go. So I didn't say, oh, I worked right up until Manx, went to Manx, never rang them and said I was going, I'm going tomorrow. I just didn't go to work. And uh, when I got home, uh, the old P45, as uh, mum says, oh, you've had a letter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I bet I have. About the housekeeping, Mum. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned uh, a certain Mr. Fogarty there, and I think, was it at the Manx that you guys first kind of almost ran into each other? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, 250 newcomers race. Uh, it was quite clear to our practice that me and him were going to be the fastest pair. I would, I'd be, well, we're, we're both the same age, so 18 way in my opinion now too early to be doing Mans Grand Prix especially with no parental guidance do you know like now it's a big thing if somebody goes racing bikes even Icky's dad says I don't want you going doing roads I don't, you can do whatever you want I don't want you doing roads because it's a dangerous thing road racing on short circuits has got an element of risk hasn't it but actually going at Manx a lot of parents don't like that <laughs> there wasn't really any kind of I introduction though was there no, then? I no. mean now you, you've got that there's structure there's yeah. you know I had a, I had a dad who were going uh, are you going to do well, man? Are you going to do Manx? Well I don't know I'm, I'm thinking of get to do Manx that's up for you <laughs> this is at a time when we just got our first remote control telly and he wouldn't let me have remote <laughs> but he's quite prepared to port me off down Bray Hill on a flipping big motorbike but then you got now you get a lap in a, if you go and do TT or Manx now you get a lap in a bus with an experienced rider and you get you get a speed control lap behind a marshal and you're not allowed to overtake him and he points out dangerous areas or where they might be slippy and you're eased into it very nicely uh, in my day and Carl's day and any time before that you went to Isle of Man if you'd done a few laps on a road bike all well and good if you hadn't they didn't stop you going out you was you paid your entry fee and you were quite entitled to go down that road so you sat up there you waited it would generally about half five in the morning because it were all early morning practices then it was freezing cold my first ever lap right I didn't know where I was going I'm on a 250 that I borrowed because my 125 wasn't eligible right and I had a bloke in a white smock holding out a chalkboard that says wet all round leaves under trees and fog on the mountain and he looked at his board pointed at it and he went and off I went and even at I mean I'm thinking I shouldn't really be doing this but that was Carl's first year as well and um, I survived we had a uh, we had a couple of dudes on track where we came across each other both orange jackets on to denote we were newcomers um, but I actually fell off on Thursday afternoon which was big afternoon practice then you, you got a full afternoon at it Thursday and uh, I fell off on mountain and broke my collarbone and a rib and lost a bit of skin here and there totally uninjured really in the grand scheme of things but knocked myself about a bit and Carl went on to win not only newcomers but he won the Open 250 as well and lapped at 105 mile an hour when that was a good TT lap time on a 250 MR that we're on so Carl had a I'd been with him and I'd done 100 just about um, but he he had a he had a good man did Carl Carl was particularly a particularly good uh, road racer a good Isle of Man Carl was uh, uh, quite exceptionally good actually he was um, yeah very good and he like I say he went really quick that week 
whether I could have seen him in a race, probably not in actual fact. But I'd have definitely been somewhere close. But the, it, you know, like they say, every cloud has a silver lining. Well, I ended up in Noble's Hospital for about a day and a half because we were a little bit concussed as well. And uh, Carl obviously got all the plaudits and the big picture in MCN, and he's got his newcomers award and his flipping bronze replicas and his silver replicas. But uh, I took a nurse out. <laughs> Called Sue, and she's really nice. So at least I got a shag out of job. And if I went back and had my time again, I'd probably do the same again. Ladies and gentlemen, Sue. So that early part of your of your career in Britain, um, again, you mentioned Mick Grant before. He seemed to want to get you onto a big bike. I think seems to be the phrase from certainly the book and yeah, other things I've read. It is a fact, it's still a fact that totally unlike the continent, on the continent, especially Italy, Spain, Holland, Germany a little bit, they produced some really cracking small bike riders. 50, 80, 125, Stefan Dorflinger, Angel Nieto, all these sort of people. Um, and they were valued as small bike riders and mainly because where these bikes were produced was in Spain, Italy, Derbys and Casals yeah. and, and all these MBAs and Morbidellis and all these was European bikes. In Britain, we, we have always been a big bike culture, always. We've always made good big bikes. And I think that's really why we've always had an interest in racing big bikes in this country, a lot more than our continent. So I was racing a 125 in 85, 86, a really good little thing, a little twin called an MBA. I just rebuilt one last year. Superb little machine, but it was a 125. I remember Mick Grant coming to my house and said, I need to sit down with you. I've been watching a little bit. He says, you're not gonna get anywhere. He's brutal, he's Mick. I mean, absolutely, brutally honest, the way he sees it. And he says, you are never gonna make a living. If you wanna try and be 125 world champ, crack on. But I think you can make a living out of this. Go and get yourself a big bike. The class at the time was called Superstock, which were based on either FZ Yamaha or GSXR Slabsider Suzuki. They were the two bikes. And he said, get yourself one of them, do Superstock. I think you can make a living over the next 10 years and I think you can do all right. And so I had that winter thinking, what am I going to do? I, want, I like racing my bike. I'm scared of getting on a big bike. And he's all time going, you can ride that. You can definitely ride that. Honestly, might take a bit of learning, but you'll be all right. So following year, I sold my MBA in about January and we cobbled together a slab side G6R and I started riding big bikes. And um, never looked back really, I mean, I, and I did enjoy riding big bikes. I enjoyed having a bit more power. I enjoyed, I rode big bikes all right. I, I, I rode big bikes probably, you never think you're gonna do because little ones handle and they stop well and you, you can be precise with them and you just feel like a race bike. G6R slab cider, it just feels like a big old jelly, it's horrible. But I were all right, I, I, I felt I were all right at it. Fell off a bit, but um, yeah, got some results. So well, Miku shoved me into big bikes. And that's the way we're going then, super bikes. Can you remember F1, the F1 championship, for all four-stroke racing, then there was super stock, then there was uh, super bikes, and all that was because manufacturers weren't selling any more two-strokes. They were all going four-strokes. Americans had stopped even allowing two-strokes to be road bikes because of emissions in California first and then all the states. So basically, we're all going four-strokes. So you were either, you stayed on your little bikes and never really got anywhere in the sport, or 
he took a bit of a leap and went big stuff. So it's probably a good uh, uh, point to talk about the Whitam style. The, the, the pictures of you from the sort of late 80s, early 90s, where you're just literally hanging off the side of the bike and your long neck and your head's out and all the captions that would be that Mick Grant had chucked a pound coin at Coppice and sent you out to look for it, etc., etc. How did all the Whitam... All true. Well, that was your wages, probably. Um, but Wages? <laughs> yeah, well, that's another thing. But uh, how did the Whitam style develop? Was it just because of getting the best out of the motorcycles at the time? Uh, I think you uh, you ride a bike however feels natural to you. And as long as it isn't really uncomfortable, you don't want to be thinking about how you sound a bike, do you? It's like, I, I, I still do a lot of training with people on bikes on track. And... That I say to them, there is no perfect style to sit on a motorbike. You go watch a BSB meeting or a WSB meeting. There's several different styles you'll see. For example, Shane Byrne was old school, body upright, arm straight. The modern way now, if you look at somebody like Scott Redding, their heads down, almost down by the handlebar, their elbows are out next to the knee so they can scrape their elbows. It's not that they're leaning over much more, it's just that their elbow is next to the knee, where mine a bit, you know. So. You ride a bike as you feel natural riding that bike because what you don't want to be thinking about when you go around a track is how you're riding it. You want to be thinking about other things, how much grip you've got, what the bike's doing, where you're putting it, braking points, all the rest of it. So I never really, it just happened, is what I'm saying. Um, other things that happened were British titles. Yeah. Uh, I mean, how many did you get in the end? Four, I mean, all told, four titles, was it? Or you can't count? It's kind of a, a little bit of a grey area because it, they chopped about that much. Mm. With uh, Now, all people see now as BSB. BSB is a brand. BSB only existed. Even though we had superbikes before that, and even though we had British Championships on superbikes before that, BSB is its own brand. So BSB, the logo, everything is trademarked. So BSB has only existed since 1996. Before that, we had superbikes and we had British Championships. And, and we had supercars and everything else. You had oh. televised things. All I'll say is, we had, there were only ever one, whatever you called it, Eat Super Cup, Super One. Uh, there were all sorts of names for it, but there were only ever one major big bike, unlimited, run what you brung kind of championship at UK. Now it is BSB. But it was called all sorts of stuff. And if you count, so I won 180cc British Championship on a bike called a Wix. They were built in Leeds. So I won an 80 on the British Wix. I won a 1125 Championship on my own MBA. I won uh, a Championship on Mick Grant's thing with some big air scoops. That were called, uh, I don't know what it was called, but it was a major beat Rob Mack to Championship. I won one on a fast orange Yamaha, uh, and that's it. And after that, I missed out on one in 96 on a boost bike when me and Mackenzie, oh, and an and a unlimited production one on a GSXR for me, so. But, but you, yeah, I mean, you are probably champion 88 yeah, on a GSXR yeah. But it, it don't matter, it, you can, I mean, it don't matter now anyway, because I can say I got nine, you don't know. <laughs> you can say I got none, and I can't argue with that. It's like it's, it's really weird, isn't it? How you know? I don't. I don't it's not GCSEs, isn't it? Or GCEs? Yeah, of course it is. And I ain't got 
the, in my house that I live now, I haven't got one. I've got a couple of racing pictures that are not even motorbike knee down racing pictures. They maybe garage shots with a couple old. I've got a black and white one where I'm sat on a stool because I've had a really bad, had a bad morning. I'm just editing my hands like that. But it's a black and white shot and it's really nice. I ain't got any proper action shots. I've got no shots of me on a podium. I've got no programs. I've got no. I've got them all in my shed. I've got no uh, cups. I've got no anything. I've got no trophies. All in my shed. I don't. I, I don't what I don't want to do is be. I remember going to a mate of mine's house. I thought I would a mate, and this bloke's won a couple of club championships. When he turned in the end of his street, it was like there were lights in his window flashing like this. Not at Christmas. Just like normal, and all his cups were in his bay window, and I'm like, what? What? If that's if you're going racing motorbikes because you want to put your trophies in your bay window and impress your neighbours, that's why would you want to do that? Small cock. That's why I was. But I ain't got. I've got no in now. So, but yeah, I've, if you call them British Championships, yeah, couple. Ladies and gentlemen, James Whitton, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the More Bikes podcast. Remember to visit morebikes.co.uk for more news, reviews and bike tests. Thank you for listening.